0: Questions, thoughts, haikus on this morning?
1: Oh, alo-strander. No questions, right? I mean, yeah.
2: I found it interesting earlier this week when I was reading this passage um, with Herod You know, he, in your comments too that he really did, uh, he was excited to meet Jesus um, yeah. kind of for some different reasons. And in fact, when uh, his niece asked for the head, he was, he was not happy about that. Um, from all accounts I can see, he, he, uh, he was disturbed by that because that's not at all what he thought that she would ask for. Right. Um, but again, not because he had any great love for, for John, I think. It was just that was, he, he still found John an interesting fellow and uh, had some uses for him, I think. But uh, anyway, it was, just, it was just very interesting turn of events.
0: Yeah, let's, let's actually, I had it marked down as something we can look through. Let's go to Matthew um, 14. We can read, get a, more of an insight into Herod the events where John the Baptist ends up getting vivisected. Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So Herod had, um, did he kill Philip or did Philip die naturally? I think he killed his brother. But either, regardless, he married Herodias, which is contrary to the law of Moses, the law of Leviticus. Uh, you do not uncover your brother's um, nakedness, you don't lay with his wife. Um, they viewed it as a form of incest. Um, and, uh, it's not lawful for you to have her. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. No, actually, I don't think Philip was dead. I think he forced him to divorce her. I think part of the problem is he's still alive. Serena? Right, right, right. No, that, Yeah, I think, I think Philip's still alive. Okay, someone who can check the history can tell me what's going on there. Um, and though he wanted to put him to death, oh, here's a common trend, he feared the people. Just like the Sadducees and the scribes, um, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he, and that word for pleased insinuates, I think, arousal or something like that. Uh, there's something erotic going on here. Um, this isn't just, you know, doing the, uh, the hokey-pokey. She's dancing. Um, I was going to say the Macarena, but I couldn't grab the word in time. You know, um... And uh, so he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was sorry because of his oath, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on the platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So this is a this is a pretty perverse guy absolutely and um he he want, you know he wanted to see Jesus and uh there's nothing good about that yes al
2: so he also didn't have enough character to um well first of all i'm sure there was some heavy drinking going on which uh usually at a party like that yeah. uh which didn't help but so he he granted her a stupid wish from the beginning, right? Um, and then he didn't have enough character to say, no, what I said was wrong, you can't ask for that, that is not right. You know, he, he, he wanted to save face, and so right. he had to go through with it, yeah. didn't want to be an embarrassment after he'd already sworn, so there was just a lot of very interesting things there.
0: Yeah, I mean these are despicable people, and and again we got to guard against the notion of trying to find the good guys and the bad guys, and we think okay because these guys are calling Jesus innocent, and Pilate in particular because Pilate three four times in, in Luke tries to, but let me I'll, I'll discipline him he's innocent but I'll punish him and send him away, I mean the guy's an absolute um, unjust, I think of the uh, the, the parable Jesus told it, the unjust judge I neither fear man nor God but because this widow bug I think of Pilate. Um, and he, he clearly doesn't fear God. He messes with the Jewish worship system and mingles the blood. He's not a good guy. But even this wicked man sees this man's innocent. Let me just punish him and send him away three or four times. Which also further zeroes in. Ultimately, it's the rejection of the Jewish people that forced this to happen. It, it would not have happened. And that's part of what Luke's trying to communicate to Theophilus. This ultimately is due to the insistence of the Jews. Absolutely, Pilate and Herod go along with it, but it's clearly, it wouldn't have happened if the Jews hadn't kept insisting and insisting and insisting, and there are chances for it not to happen. And ultimately, the Jews bear the biggest responsibility. These Jews bear the biggest responsibility for, for Jesus going to the cross. Um, there can be no mistake, Israel rejected his Messiah. It wasn't just something they did in the spur of the moment. They are insistent, doubled down, well, and the irony being they accuse Jesus of, of sedition, who do they release? Okay. Perapus, who started an insurrection and killed somebody. I mean, it's just laughable. I mean, it's laughable this side of the resurrection where you know the tragedy of it is less um, dark for us because we know what good comes of it, we know the story ends. But it's laughable, it's a farce. Greg.
1: I just wanted if you'd confirm for me what a tetrarch is versus a governor. Pontius Pilate was a civil authority yes. of Rome, a uh, governor of this particular territory. He sent Jesus to Herod, uh, didn't call him governor. Nope. Is Herod a religious or tetrarch, tetrarch the religious uh, equivalent of...
0: I think, that that's, no, that's a good question. Um, I think, well, a couple of things. Rome regularly respected the original governments in place. So when you read through Acts, when, when Paul interacts with officials in various towns, they got all types of names, whether they're proconsuls or whether they're governors. or Because well, that's what you call your leader? Sure, we'll call them that, whatever. Pilate's a level above Herod. Pilate's all of Judea. Herod's Galilee. So I'm not sure why he's a tetrarch versus a governor, but Herod is a bigger fish. I mean, Pilate is a bigger fish than Herod. We do know extra-biblically, Herod's half-Jewish. Part of the reason he was building up the temple was to try to ingratiate himself to the Jews. He wanted to look Jewish. He wanted to be Jewish and be received as a Jewish, which is part of the reason why John's calling him on this violation of the law. You're a hypocrite. You're not keeping the law. You're... Yeah, you know. um, so that's part of it. But I, I'm not entirely sure. But it again gets back to the accuracy of Luke because he's done his research. I mean, I think I was listening to Carson, DA Carson, 21 times in Luke, in Acts. Luke gets it exactly right with the name of the city and the appropriate government connected to it. I mean, it's it's crazy how, the accuracy level that he gets. Were you we going to say something? Yeah. Microphone, microphone
3: so there's a couple of meanings but they say tetrarchs are the four co-emperors of the roman empire instituted by the emperor Diocletian, and then um formed by the sons of herod the great tetrarchy so it's specifically in this case
0: so herod the great's empire or his rule breaks into four parts four tetrarchs under him but herod the great wasn't the head of rome so these these aren't Herod's not one of four people ruling Rome. This is under. This is the breakdown of Herod the Great's kingdom, right? Which is which was still a subset of Rome.
3: And uh, I can give you the breakdown if you, do you it. want it. You do um, it. So there's a territory under Herod, Archelaus. Um, there's the um, six, Judea province. You know, I U D A E A. However you pronounce that, then there's the territory under Herod Antipas. Then the territory under Philip, who was alive, so he wasn't killed when no, Herod.
0: He was just divorced. Yeah. Yeah, because yep. he was in another region. Which is why it's yeah. My wife was right.
3: And then Salome.
0: It's on the tape. I said
3: it. Salome one good. I was wrong. She was right. Salome or Salome the first Roman, uh, yeah. So those, those were the territories. And you can look it up. Yeah.
0: Um. There you go, Greg. Basically, when Herod the Great's empire, his sub-empire broke up, he created tetrarchs as four co-regents to rule his kingdom. At least I didn't say tetrarch. Remember back in, in Luke, when we were back in chapter 3, I had a number of you, it's not tetrarch. So I was careful today to say tetrarch. Not tetriarch. It may, it may be. Okay, other, other questions? Other Yes,
3: Linda. Okay, I'm just going to add to <laughs> more about the... Um, so Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And when she married Philip, he was her uncle. So she was already in the wrong marrying Philip. Right. because Right. Which
0: means Herod's also her uncle. Right. And I think Herod married her in more to try to get in, in that claim to being... A Jewish ruler, right?
3: Well, no, it just says that, um, so when she and Philip were guests in Herod's home is when he convinced her to leave him and stay with him, (laughs) so it's just a big mess, but yeah, yeah, so she was already off on the wrong foot to begin with, and then just kept it going, so yeah. On the microphone. If you think of Alexander the Great, his empire was broken up
0: into four. Four. It yeah, was a common horns. thing. That's right. Okay.
2: You spoke of the significance of Jesus' silence with Herod. Are there other examples where Jesus was silent in a significant way?
0: Most of the trial, he's silent. I mean, the other Gospels um, may have... I'd have to compare the other Gospels to see where he's silent there. He's uniformly silent in front of Herod. He has a longer dialogue with Pilate in John, where you get to this wonderful postmodern question where Pilate says, what is truth? You know, um, so it could be written on a headline today. Um, significant silences... Do you have any in mind? or It's it's primarily in this trial. Well, here's the biggest thing in the trial scene, because even as he goes to the cross, he's going to say, don't cry for me. But in the context of Isaiah 53, it's a sheep crying out, crying out in terror. Please don't do this to me. Please. It's, he doesn't do that. He doesn't plead and intercede on his own behalf to be let off the hook. It's not that he's just totally silent. I mean, he can speak on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What he's not doing is crying out, please have mercy, please don't do this, please stop. He's like a sheep before she was, you're you're gonna kill me, and I'm not gonna appeal to you. I'm not going to um have any I'm not gonna defend myself. And it's not always wrong to defend yourself. We know that Paul pleads and appeals to Caesar when he's arrested. So it's not that in every instance and always Christians need to not defend themselves. But clearly at the very least there are times where the right thing to do is to just I'm going to trust God, and I'm not going to defend myself. I think one of the indicators Jesus gives that this is one of those times is these people aren't interested in truth. Last week, if I if I ask you, you won't tell me, and if I speak, you won't believe me. I mean, the the, the ruler of the region just pronounced me innocent, and now I got another trial. I mean, what's the point, um, Greg?
1: So the difference between. Jesus and St. Paul, uh, is Jesus is now on board with the, with the process. Uh, he is now um, in full agreement with the Father of this is what needs to be done. Right. So, honestly, if he had pled for deliverance from Pilate, he would have thwarted the Father's will, as right. uh, strange as that seems.
0: Yeah, that, that was the wrestling in the garden, absolutely. But I'm also thinking that passage in Peter we read, where Jesus left us an example that we might follow in his footsteps, and then it goes on to say when he was reviled, when he was beaten, he did not threaten, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he continued in trusting. Him. So apparently for Christians, there are times, and I'm thinking maybe even what we heard about I'd be careful because this isn't online. About our friend in another part of the world, you know, if you get arrested there, you might realize there's there's no way this court's letting me go. I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna trust God and not say much. You know, that might be the right thing to do. I wouldn't condemn the person who wants to mount a vigorous defense, but clearly there are times to do that. Um, Jesus did it because this is the plan. This is God's will. And the, the asking for the cup to pass was a few hours earlier. I mean, again, I'm still struck. It was a real battle. Far better to fight it on your knees beforehand than here. He's triumphant here because he won the battle there. Um, he did ask the cup to pass there. There he did cry out with a loud voice. He was not a silent lamb in the garden. He's a silent lamb here. Yeah. Oh, Jamie. And he's a microphone. My Mennonite brother over there. It's just, it's the facial hair. What was that? I said, my Mennonite brother.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Maybe we found the wrong church. Um. Ha, <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, look, so, you, you, you remind me right. of, France, you remind of Francis that thing. Yeah, I like yeah. it. No, no, I dig it, dude. It's, yeah, it's nice. nice. I
1: like it. I appreciate it. Um, okay. Oh, what was my question? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so Luke's account, Luke's known to be detailed. Yeah. Very accurate. Um, in Matthew, what do you think Matthew's reason, if there is one, um, to point out Pilate's wife, had had told Pilate to have nothing to do with this man. Let's go take a look at it. Where yeah, is it? Chapter that? twenty-seven,
0: Matthew uh, twenty-seven, verse nineteen. Well, the simple answer is, without really studying it, I can give you some off-the-cuff thoughts, but I, I, I I'm going to punt ultimately. Um, so. Oh, man, Matthew's got a lot of details. I mean, the authors are emphasizing different things. I mean, i just sorry. 25, his blood be on us and our children. I mean, good night. Um, that's what the Jews cried out when Pilate's trying to let Jesus go. It's on us. <laughs> okay, so what verse were you saying um, with his wife? 19. Okay. Okay. Um, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. I think off the cuff, given where it goes at 25, it's to show this happened because the Jews wanted it to happen. Nobody else wanted this to happen. Nobody else was eager, like, yeah, I've been waiting to do that. Pilate has every reason to want Jesus to just be, disappear, kick the can down the road, which culminates then in the Jews saying, we will take full responsibility. His blood be on us. I think Matthew is, at the very least, one of his main points is to show primary culpability is on the Jews. That'd be my guess. There's probably more going on there. If anyone has any other thoughts, um, throw them out. But given that it culminates at that terrifying <sighs> uh, um, claim Uh, that we're seeing this was, I mean, it's a collaboration in one sense, but this is a collaboration
2: driven by the Jews. Um, I'm also just thinking off the cuff, but it seems like it might be, I've thought this before, actually, that it might be another form of God's grace and mercy in trying to put another stop before Pilate, not not one that will succeed, but another like red flag of, hey, don't do this. And yet, he still does it anyway, right. but God is still reaching out and making Pilate accountable in what he's doing even more so than had this not happened. Mm.
0: Well, that's, that's one of the things you see from this, is there's so many ways the crucifixion could have not happened. I mean, there's, there's op- many opportunities for it to not happen, um, and, and God's doing plenty of things like that where it could have not happened. And so, yeah, I mean and tying in with that, why does it happen? Because the Jews were insistent. Pers. I mean, where's the one where they say you're no friend of Caesar? I mean, is that Matthew? I always get, I mean, I'm studying Luke so my knowledge of Luke's pretty solid, but my Matthew, what well, is in Matthew and what's in Mark? I confuse um where is it? We have no king but Caesar. If you let this man go, you're no friend to Caesar. I mean, they really start pressing Pilate hard. Let me check Matthew. I mean, Mark. Um, 19, 12. Ooh. John 19, 12. Yes. Okay. So, John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate sought... To, okay, go back further. This, this would get... We'll look at the larger interview with Pilate. Pilate gets kind of unnerved by Jesus. (laughs) And we see even more insight into why he wants to let Jesus go. So um, John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to him, See? See? I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That's kind of a weird way to show you find no guilt in somebody, but that's the way Pilate's world works. Um, So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man, which harkens back to John the Baptist in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, John knows what he's doing. John set that up in chapter 1, and then Pilate comes up, Behold the man. I mean... This is cool. Then the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in them. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I mean, he's like, okay, who have I got on my hands here? <laughs> um, he entered into his headquarter and said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. There's another notable silence, Doug. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivers me over to you has the greater sin. And that really freaks out Pilate. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. (laughs) But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, I mean, basically, Pilate ultimately does it for fear that a rumor's going to get to Caesar that he's traitorous. And, you know, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, that'll put a stop to you pretty fast. And so that final, I mean, really, they have to intimidate and threaten Pilate for Pilate to concede. Um, so it's remarkable. That's the longer exchange with with Pilate, and um, then Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Arabic Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, "Behold, your king." They cried, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him!" Pilate said to them, "Shall I crucify your king?" The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Yeah. His blood be on our heads. We have no king but Caesar. I mean, it's just... Yeah, Greg.
1: It's, it's clear from, from all the Gospels that the the Jews were not just... Standby watchers, they they were and yet when the movie, the Gospel of the Passion of Christ, I believe, came out a few years ago, there was a renewed call that this was just anti-Semitism to blame the Jews for Christ's death. And you think, have you read this?
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, in fact, one of the uh, one of the uh, up until the 20th, late, mid, early, mid-20th century, the prevalent thought was that John wasn't written until the 4th century somewhere in Alexandria and Egypt. And the, the argument, part of the argument for that was John is so anti-Semitic. I mean, notice how it just said the Jews. And in John's gospel, the Jews means the ungodly fighting against God Jews because earlier in John 12, uh, it says, many in Jerusalem believed in him but were afraid to confess it for they feared the Jews. Now, wait a second. <laughs> So clearly, at this point, John's clearly using the Jews to mean not every Israelite, but the Jewish nation who opposed Christ and put him to death, something like that. And so that's viewed as anti-Semitic. And so, see, this is evidence of the conflict between the Church and Judaism in the third century. And so, and then we found early documents of John dated to 125 AD, and that in a way it's nonsense but no, no there's charges of anti-Semitism in John John's been charged as an anti-Semitic gospel because of exactly that or it's an accurate historic record I mean it, and the point is not to be like those terrible wicked people the point is like yeah, that'd be you and me if not for the grace of God I mean what they're doing is in essence what kids do, right? I mean you know a kid throws a temper tantrum or they, or they really want something and okay well I don't care whatever Give it to me. I need... That's what's going on here. These people hate Caesar. They, they are waiting for a Messiah to come and deliver them. They're waiting for that. They, the debated question is, are we sinning if we give Caesar tribute, if we give him the coin? I mean, aren't we then recognizing a pagan government, and nowhere in the law of Moses is it say to do that. So isn't that an invalid government? Wouldn't the faithful thing be to just not pay, not recognize him, and trust God? I mean, those are the types of debates they're having. They're trying to get Jesus trapped in. To then turn around and say, we have no king but Caesar. It reminds me of Saul's descent into madness where Saul starts in, in, in Samuel once that hit single, first hit single in the Bible. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the text says, I love the wording, from that moment on, Saul eyed David. And it goes from that to then Saul putting David on, on dangerous missions. Remember, for his daughter, McCall's uh, dowry, he wants, what, 200 Philistine foreskins? which is clearly an attempt, maybe maybe David will get killed, to then having secret hit squads going after David. And at a certain point, Jonathan, Saul's son, and the whole reason Saul wants David killed is because he wants to create the dynasty for his son, Jonathan. And when Jonathan stands up for David and, and rebukes his father, what does Saul do? He picks up a spear and tries to pin his own son against the wall. Like, What are you doing? The whole reason you want to take David out, is to make room for your son. But at a certain point, there's this sort of insane, I want what I want, I don't care. Give it to me. And eventually, of course, you know, Saul ends up consulting a medium, whom he says to, I mean, you want to talk about blasphemy? The medium says, she smells a trap, she says, the king is outlawed it. There's kind of a death penalty for practicing sorcery in Israel. And if you look at the text, when you see Lord in all caps, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh. He says, as Yahweh lives, no harm will befall you. Now summon up a spirit for me. <laughs> it's like, as Yahweh lives, conduct the satanic rite. I mean, it's, it's just twisted. And the same type of incoherence is seen here. Um, they want what they want when they want it, and they'll say whatever they have to say. They'll, they'll blaspheme whatever they have to blaspheme. We have no king, whatever. What is it going to take for you to kill him? We have no king but Caesar. Would that work? I mean, that's where they're at. And it really is frightening. And I think frightening is more of the response we should have because, you know, when sin gets a hold of us, it, it holds us into slavery. And you know, you've talked to people who, uh, you know, they want what they want and by golly, they're going to get it. And whatever they have to say, that doesn't matter. They're going to get what they want. Um, and that can be any one of us. So it, it's, it's a terrifying and terrible picture. Because if you told these people a month or two ago, hey, in a couple of months, you're going to say you have no king but Caesar. <laughs> They'd be like, no. We hate Caesar. No, you're going to, because you're going to want something else even more.
1: It's always been my perspective, though. I mean, when the, when the charge of anti-Semitism came out, I, I, it was sort of a stunner to me. I was thinking, well, I, I've, I guess I've never, I, mean, I blame the Jews only simply as an unbeliever. Yeah. And it would have happened anywhere else in the world. Right. And so it's not the Jews, it's the unbelievers mm-hmm. who did this.
0: Yeah, the problem is historically once Christendom came around and church and state united, this is a great reason to treat poorly the Jewish people. Messiah killers, I mean so if you yes, the Jews put Jesus to death, the Jews bear the greatest culpability. And if you use that truth to then somehow feel superior to them, you've got a nice hammer if you're an anti-semite to hit them with. And you're absolutely right. We would have done the same thing. What they did was wicked and terrible, and yes, they did it, and there's no use saying they didn't, and we are not any better. Um, that's the reality. So when people see anti-Semitism, they just realize what a powerful weapon this could be to beat someone over the head with if you wanted to. And, the, of course, the point is, well, sadly, church history is littered with the church doing it. I mean, there's, there's much precedent for this, beating over the head with these types of charges. Um, the church has not been kind to the Jewish people over the last two thousand years. Not, not, not very often, at least. Lois,
1: the the conversation here is that the Jewish people have were the reason that Jesus was crucified. That Herod and Pilate neither one found fault with him. I'm wondering what um, what would they have done like now in the today's state if the the judge finds you guilt or innocent; you're free and you can go. Well, if the pilot wouldn't, wouldn't have crucified him, what would the people have done that had him so scared?
0: They would have basically gotten word to Caesar that they said, go to John." Go back to John 19. Um, this is the thing that finally, in John's gospel, this is the. The thing that finally... In Luke, all you have is the voice of the people prevailed. John shows us how and why it prevailed. Um, Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat him out in the judgment seat, and that's when Pilate says... Oh, okay then, we'll kill him, because Pilate, for whatever reason, is not confident. I mean, he only extra biblically we know he was only reigned for ten years. He did not have a long reign, um, and so Pilate is clearly concerned that word might get out that he is sympathetic to insurrectionists, and he's afraid he, that threat. For whatever you can plug in, why that he would feel intimidated by that threat. That threat clearly intimidates him. And he doesn't want that being the report going out. I mean we already saw something like that in Jesus' parable of the the man who's going to go away to receive a kingdom, but the citizens of the city didn't like him. They sent a delegation after him. Well, something like that they're threatening to do. We'll send some people to Rome and tell Caesar, "You let this guy who's an enemy of Caesar we'll tell him what you did. He ain't going to like that, and Pilate thinks there's enough potential reality to that threat that he he caves. That's that's the threat. That's the threat. Oh, Deb.
1: Yeah, I'm back to Greg's treatise. I had always just thought it was unbelievers too. Uh you know, and not necessarily all the whole nation of the Jews.
2: Right. But
1: is in is that also that anti Semitism stuff, the stuff that we're seeing even nowadays with some Christians rejecting the Old Testament and trying to draw the line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, one's good, one's bad, and the other business about whether we're a friend of Israel or not?
0: There's a bunch of things there. The first answer, about rejecting the Old Testament, that's not as much anti-Semitism, that's usually forms of Marcionism. When you, when you come up with a bad idea, if you're the first person to come up with it, we name the heresy after you. And there's a, there's, a guy, there's a guy in the third century named Marcion who basically, this is, I mean, again, there's nothing new under the sun. He saw the Old Testament as barbaric, crude, unsophisticated, embarrassing. The God of the Old Testament's a monster. You got all the sacrifices and circumcision and, and you know, war. And couldn't we just rip that out and just start over with the New Testament and Jesus? That's Marcion. And so, yeah, that, that pops up from time to time, you know, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. And, but it's not fundamentally anti-Semitism. It is certainly a distancing ourselves from the Jewish foundation of Christianity. But I, I don't know if that's fundamentally anti-Semitism. Um, the notion with Israel, I think... Sir, and it's a fine line you've got to walk with this, because there are some people who are blind Zionists, and I don't know if that's a wise place to be either. Meaning, we're going to support Israel no matter what. And... One of the points I've tried to make is there's a future for Israel, but it's a believing Israel. And an unfaithful Israel only has a claim to the curses of Deuteronomy, which if you read them, have actually been pretty literally and historically filled out. So Israel right now is an unbelieving nation, has no divine claim to that land. Not now. They they don't. So I tend to, when I read the news, I'm not an expert on this, so I don't want to jump in with both both feet. I tend to be sympathetic and think they have a just claim to the land or a just claim to self-defense. They, they may well. But if, you know, if Israel turns around and does an atrocity, does in fact commit an atrocity against Palestinians, we should decry it. We should condemn it. We shouldn't blindly support Israel. Well, even though Israel used sarin nerve gas on a bunch of in orphanages in Palestine, we need to back them. No, they didn't do that. But, but in some hypothetical universe where they did, we shouldn't just say, well, we've got to support Israel. No. We, we would be right in condemning that. Um, so, I tend to read the news being sympathetic with Israel and its plight, but I think you have to take that case by case on a justice level. It's not until Israel's believing that they have a just, a, a, a supernatural covenantal claim to the land. God said flat out in Deuteronomy, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. And so, by his grace, they are back on the land. But, so, so on the one hand, I wouldn't advocate blind Zionism. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear people just use back Israel. Uh, Not necessarily. But certainly what's known as replacement theology or covenant theology or supersessionism, and none of those categories are are helpful. There's a view that the church is the new Israel, that we're spiritual Israel, that we've inherited all the Old Testament promises that God is forever, always done with Israel. That certainly, that view is a necessary piece to become an anti-Semite. It doesn't demand, It doesn't. It doesn't make you an anti-Semite. But you're gonna have a hard time believing Israel is the chosen people of God, who will be restored, who are beloved sons, natural-born olive branches, who will be grafted back in. But even go to Romans. Go to Romans 11. Paul even anticipates anti-Semitism in Romans 11. And warns us against it. Um, So in in Romans 11, um, verse 17: If some of the branches are broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, you Gentiles, meaning, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So the first way to humble ourselves, lest we become arrogant against Israel, is we have a Jewish Messiah. We're saved by Jewish promises. We have a Jewish book. Um, We are debtors to the Jewish people in every way. Um, So the first is you are not, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, then the next argument, and this is where supersessionism comes in, the replacing notion of Israel placing the church, branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. They were too bad to remain. God kicked them out, and my implication we must be somewhat better because he hasn't done the same thing to us. And that's where the little nugget of pride can creep in. Because if you believe Israel, the church is the new Israel and Israel is so wicked and so corrupt and their rejection of Jesus was so final that God finally cast them off. You must conclude that at least incrementally the church is doing a better job because God hasn't cast us off. and, and, So Paul's next reason he objects to against pride is, um, so so we we might say branches are broken off that ah, I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through faith. So do not be proud, but fear. The right conclusion to Israel and our reading of this is not pride, but fear. Oh, Lord, protect us from doing anything so wicked. There but the grace of God. But Do not be proud, but fear. For if God... Did, here's the real logic. If God didn't spare the natural branches, if he, if he cast off for a time the apple of his eye, Israel, don't think he's going to let your stuff slide. That's the right, according to Paul, conclusion to draw. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided... You continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, having the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So, he reminds us against pride against Israel. One, we're standing on Jewish promises at saved by a Jewish Messiah, Jewish covenants redeem us, and Jewish scriptures inform us. And second, rather than being proud, as if somehow like I was so special that God threw off Israel to bring me in, no, no, draw the other conclusion. If his natural-born son he kicked out of the house for his rebellion, what do you think he's going to do to the adopted son if he starts rebelling? If he didn't spare the homegrown son, what's he going to do to you and me? That's that's the conclusion we should come to. Fear. Taking God seriously. <clears throat> anyway, let me I cannot see the time. Anyone have a brief question, or I can let you go two minutes early. Brief question. Now is not the time to ask about predestination. <laughs> you are dismissed.